Hey Star Wars fans, welcome to another episode of the Jedi Council podcast and you are in for a treat. Actually, I feel like I've been saying that quite a lot recently because we've been doing really random podcasts. But anyway, um, we are here to talk to you about the amazing, really good, brilliant book novelization of the Rise of Skywalker that has been released within the last day or two. Um, and who is we and who am I? I always forget to do this. My name is Alex. I'm your host of the Jello Council, and it is great to have you with us. If this is the first time uh, of joining us, hello, welcome. We hope to keep you entertained for the next hour, hour and a half-ish of everything and anything Star Wars. If this is a returning listen, thank you very much for your friendship, your fellowship, your loyalty. Uh, we do appreciate every single listen that we at the Council get. Who am I and who am I with? I'm with Mr. Contrary himself, Alistair Clark. Say hello, Ellie. Dave, did he do this yesterday when you did the YouTube video? No, he didn't. He was good. He behaved himself. But then he was doing the introduction. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. <clears throat> and who that other voice is, if, if you do not know, listeners, this is my good buddy in the force, Dave. Say hello, Dave. Hello, Dave. Hello. The council is now in session. Got it in there first. So, listeners, if you don't know why we are celebrate, celebrating my stupidity, uh, <laughs> it is because Mr. Contrary himself has been stealing my thunder uh, when it comes to starting off our podcast. But I thought I'd get in there first just to uh, mix it up a little bit. So, gentlemen, yes, uh, we are here to discuss and talk to you about the novelization of The Rise of Skywalker. Before we talk about any details about the book whatsoever, I want to say a big shout out. Thank you. Round of applause for the people over at Delray UK who were kind enough to indeed clap claps all around to uh, kind enough to send us some preview copies prior to launch so we could get the books in the post, get them, read them, do this review podcast in time for the release of the book. Um, and Ali, it was you that instigated that conversation, mate, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, so it, it seemed to me that this book perhaps more so than any other piece of literature that's come out from Star Wars in recent times, was really, really important. And so us having the ability to see it a bit earlier and be able to report on it, I thought was really necessary um, before it came out. So, yeah, great, great to speak to the guys at, at Del Rey. Really thankful for the book. But, um, yeah, I'm hoping that going forward we can establish this relationship with them and so we'll be able to bring new content first on an ongoing basis, which is, which is brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it didn't help with my tweet saying, please, Ray, uh, please, Del Rey, give us some free books. I'm sure that didn't help it whatsoever. Um, I'm pretty, yeah. I, think, I think they said to me that actually that set the relationship back. You should stop that. <laughs> yeah, it's like we can give you some free books, but not to this guy. <clears throat> yeah, they did. They did. Pretty, pretty much. Um, so, guys, uh, with regards to the information coming out of the Rise of Skywalker, I think we can all agree um, that the book has reaffirmed your faith, Dave, in particular, uh, of this particular film. Um, we'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, and obviously, Mr. Contrary, you are not even more of a fan of the film, for want of a better word. But again, it's kind of added to the value that the film 
has brought to you. I think that's the best way to describe to it. And, you know, Ray Carson's um, words on the page have supplemented a huge amount of, of information about the movie, the characterizations in the movie and the arcs that kind of interlink everything. Not to mention a couple of, um, eh, weird, for me anyway, a couple of interesting scenarios in and around Star Wars lore. And, what, and I'm sure we'll get to that in just a minute. But before we get into the nitty gritty of the book, Dave, uh, Ali, I know both of you did a, a, a brilliant YouTube video the other day on your initial reaction, but for those listeners who haven't seen the video, quick review, quick thought about the book itself. Dave, over to you. What was your kind of feelings after reading the book? I loved it. Um, you, I, I, I've seen other people talk about books as being page turners, um, and th- this was definitely that type of novel for me. It was fast-paced it's a very engaging read Ray Carson has a very good style when it comes to writing this type of novel um, it quickly grabs the attention of the reader and, and pulls you along for the ride it, it feels like a Star Wars movie in a book um, really good really enjoyed it from start to finish um, and it, it massively enhanced the movie for me massively enhanced the movie it, it's pushed the movie back up in my rankings oh we'll come back to that in just a minute and i'll get to you ali in just a second dave me and you we've read i don't know how many star wars books in, in combination oh. together uh, i don't even want to start guessing at that and we own quite a collection between the two of us but in comparison to some of the other star wars books you've read let's ignore EU for now. Let's kind of just focus on the post-Disney buyout books. Mm-hmm. How does this book kind of relate in comparison to some of those? Yeah, oh, it's quite possibly the best I've read this year. Um, I've just, pr- prior to this, um, I just finished reading Last Shot and Whilst the back end of Last Shot was quite a, um, quite good um, and I enjoyed it, the, f- the beginning of that as a novel I found a little bit of a slog and a little bit slow, despite it being established characters. It's Lando, it's Han Solo. Um, despite it being a novel about them, I really struggled to get into that as a book. I didn't find it as engaging. Um, so for me... It's, it's a very good book. I'm trying to think of what other books I've read this year. Um, um, I also read the... Oh, I'm trying to, trying to think what it was called, actually. Um, it was the trilogy that came out. I can, I can visualise the books in front of Aftermath. me. Aftermath? Sorry? Aftermath, those ones? Aftermath, that's it, yes. Yes, because you've been talking about it on a previous mm. podcast. Oh, the so Chuck Wendy like, trilogy. Yes, yeah. yes, that's it, Chuck Wendy. And and again, um, I didn't dislike them. I enjoyed them as books, and they've, they've definitely added to to the 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 whole of Star Wars. But I've read them this year, and again, this novel it beats them hands down. It, it really <laughs> is a really good book. I mean, whether you like the movie or not. I would say that this is a very, very good Star Wars novel. A very quick, very fast-paced, very engaging. I've read Ray Carson's books before because I read her 
um, solo most wanted novel, which was a backstory really before solo itself mm. uh, was set a few years before that. And that, I think that was a young adult novel. And if I do have a criticism of this book, I would say that the tone is very similar to Most Wanted. I loved reading Most Wanted, so don't get me wrong. So maybe this novel could also be classed as a young adult stroke adult novel. I think it's bridging that, which is possibly why it's so fast-paced and so engaging and so easy to get into. Mm. Because the, the sentence structure composition is has been pulled together to make it perhaps a simpler read i don't know i don't know okay so that's obviously some really positive kind of feedback from you dave ali uh, you may not have read as many books as dave and myself but you know you've read a few how does this compare to some of the other star books star wars books that you've read yeah i i thought it was it was very very enjoyable to, to dave's point about the age demographic i think he's probably right but i think it's because the film was really focusing on that type of dem- demographic as well. So mm. I, I think that there's a correlation because I think um, Dave and I were discussing last night, one of the brilliant things about this book was because we've already seen the film, in our imagination, we were able to really take the characters and situations that we'd seen in the film and expand upon them with the extra dialogue in the book. Mm. So I thought that was very, very cleverly done. I think the bits where she has added always added an extra layer and um, Dave and I also spoke about sometimes it may have been to address slight concerns or issues that fans had with the film which I think was excellent as well and I, I do think that's why it was delayed slightly but in terms of, of books I think it's right up there very easy to read um, you can read it in a few hours really if you've got the time and so I, I would really recommend anyone who's on the fence about buying it or not really picking up a copy mm. yeah yeah, I totally agree. And your comment about reading it in a few hours has made me feel a bit stupid because it took me a good couple of days, but let's not worry about that. Um, but I think that says more about me than anything else. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I completely agree. And for my two pennies worth is, is pretty much echoing what you both have just said. Yeah, really good fun to read. Um, in, in the kind of line of work that I do, you always think about what you can offer a client as extra added value um, and how you can kind of go above and beyond what your day job is, as it were. Um, and I think what this book has done, it hasn't just told the story of the movie in a really good way, but it's also given us extra added value with some of the components that you don't necessarily see in the film, nor you kind of experience it because it's a moment in um kylo ren's head or ben solo's head or ray's head or even some of the words that are coming out of palpatine and the look and this that and the other you don't really get them in in the movie whereas in the book you get the whole exploration of that laid out on the page which again just gives that extra added value uh, to us as the fan and us as the reader um and we're kind of taken on this journey which is for me anyway it's so easy to read them because it's easy to read you just get into it um <clears throat> and to your point dave you know I've read quite a few Star Wars books over the past 12 months and I'm on the verge of finishing um, the Thrawn, the second book in the Thrawn trilogy, uh, Alliance, which is obviously him and Vader and him and uh, Anakin Skywalker. Um, I've got Treason ready to go as well. Uh, but I think for me, this is one of the best Star Wars books I've read 
in a while um, prior to Christmas and actually prior to the Force Awakens, uh, the, the Force Awakens, uh, the Rise of Skywalker, sorry, I did read uh, Resistance Reborn, which is like the prequel to Rise of Skywalker. Um, and again, there are certain things that are mentioned in that book that kind of get referenced in the film um, and then in the book, more, the book more importantly as well, because you get the, there's kind of reactions and interactions between characters that started off in Resistance Reborn that see them reacquainted again in this in this book as well that you don't see on on the oh. screen but you get it on the page yeah so it's really good to kind of see the the linking of the two uh, with the film kind of stuck in the middle to a certain extent if that makes sense. Oh my, what out then? <clears throat> yeah, so I totally recommend it. Um, <clears throat> it's part of the story to the Rise of Skywalker. You know the way they did that, the story to Force Awakens and the story yes. to Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi. I just had that on on the TV. That's why I said that. Uh, the Last Jedi. That's um, part of that kind of series of books. Uh, it's one of them. Highly recommend it. However, <laughs> the way Dave to... just said mm, when you said that. Mm. It's true, you know. Um, yeah, I just thought it was come over mm, for the last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go down that path. <laughs> yep, sorry. If you go down that path, it, go, it takes us down to a path of uh, the, the dark side of you know which uh, which we won't be following. Uh, I don't think not for this particular po- uh, podcast anyway. But a path that some would cons- consider unnatural. I was trying to remember that quote, but the words failed me, so I had to improvise. <laughs> improvise badly at that as well. Um, but um, okay, so the book um, we could spend hours the way we do going over the movies, going over the subplots, the character arcs, and this, that, and the other. Um, but I think what what we can kind of, I think the most important part for me is what we get in the book that you don't get in the movie and to a certain extent vice versa. Um, what do you guys think about that? So let's start to focus on the, that extra added value that I touched on earlier on. That sounds very corporate and very professional and I don't mean it to, uh, but I think that's a good way to, to kind of sculpt this podcast guys. What do you think? Let's focus on what the book gives us in addition to the movie to then Dave, how, how indeed this extra added content has made it go up the rankings for you again. Yeah, that works for me. So, yeah. If you could loop me in, we'll have some blue sky thinking about this because we, we only managed 20 minutes, of course, of the actual film. <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's take that offline. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and we can find as many, let's find as many buzzwords as we can. Um, okay, excellent. But uh, yeah, if you just, <laughs> I'll send you an email. We'll go on instant message. No, not really. Okay, cool. Um, I'm, I'm, can you do this in real time, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh God, yeah, yeah. Uh, put, well, let's do let's do brunch, darling. Um, no. Um, okay, back to the agenda. Um, the first thing that is blatantly obvious is Palpatine's message. Um, you know, as soon as, soon as you get into the book, um, actually, no. Let me take a step back. The first thing you get when you get into the book as well is the fact that the opening scene is very different. Um, yeah. They've kind of changed the running order to a certain extent. Um, which, from a storytelling stroke, historical perspective, I kind of get. Every single Star Wars movie starts with a scene in space with a massive ship flying over it, for the most part. Um, and if we were to start this particular film with Ray in the jungle, as we do get in the book, it's not a Star Wars film. Well, it is a Star Wars film, but you know what I mean. Um, so 
jumping back to Palpatine's message, we obviously get that um, in the book itself, and but we don't actually get it mentioned in the movie because we know it's in that scene from Fortnite. Uh, listeners, if you have no idea what we're talking about, go to YouTube and just search for something like Emperor Palpatine, the Rise of Skywalker, the Rise of Skywalker speech. Uh, you get like a two-minute snippet from from the Fortnite video game where his message to the galaxy that is obviously mentioned in the Rise of Skywalker is played out for you, guys. I, this might be a bit of a silly question, and I'm going to assume it would be, but it really would have been useful to have had this in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. I think we discussed it on the previous podcast, just how annoyed I was by the fact it wasn't. But I just think it would have set the scene and it, it wouldn't have taken much to have done it either. So I think it was a bit silly not to have it in there from the start, is my opinion. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. It, it, There's no reason why it wasn't in there, if that makes sense. It, it's not a case of it didn't, add to the story or it didn't link into anything or it didn't progress the story in any way it's what the entire story is about yeah and, and it's quite interesting so so what Palpatine's message is, is at last the work of generations is complete now the fact that it says generations is complete is interesting because of what you find out later in the storyline but also the great error is corrected so that's obviously about the way that he died, which mm-hmm. they didn't really go into too much in the film. The day of victory is at hand, the day of revenge, the day of Sith. And that's obviously the first mention, really, of Sith in the new trilogy or, uh, or the, the sequel trilogy. Um, so I, I think it would have added some layers and context to the story. And I, I don't really understand why they didn't use it. And also nicely ties into the previous stories that had come before. So it ties the trilogies together. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah, it's funny because that was always going to be one of the mandates for JJ, wasn't it? <clears throat> he said it himself when he did the whole press tour that this film would be the not just the accumulation of the sequel trilogy, but the literal accumulation of all nine movies in one to a certain extent. Um, mm. So that, yeah, that was a really interesting way to kind of precurse that. Um, I, I think it's good. I mean, if you listen, if you go back to our initial review of of the last of the last year i keep doing that the rise of skywalker at the time i said that not hearing his message didn't take anything away from the movie but flip flipping that on its side having it in the book added so much more to the book if that makes sense um, yeah yeah again it's which, kind of having, which implies it would add to the movie yeah exactly um what, what's the phrase you don't know where you got till it's gone and where I never had it, I didn't think I needed it. But then when you read it in the book, you think, actually, that would be really good in the film. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, very good way of summarising. But something you just mentioned as well, Alex, about this film wrapping up the trilogy, mm. I still don't think the film did a particularly good job of that. But I think the no. book did because of the extra bits that are in it. Yes. And I think if they made this version of the book as a film, added that extra hour it would have been such a better yeah. film and we wouldn't be quite where we are with fandom. Mm. No, I'd agree. But it, yeah. even this opening crawl, when you think of the way it's phrased, um, the work of a generations is good yeah. because each trilogy has been a different generation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so it, 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 just that one, that one little line 
ties together yeah. nine movies. Well, yeah, even it, it also sorry, go on. Go on. No, go on, Ali, go on. I was going to say it gives context to what we see later with him saying, "I am all the Sith," and the way mm. that we now know that Sith apparently keeps going. All the Sith lords keep going, and they take over the next one, and they have all the power of that. And by saying generations right at the beginning, that's a clear foreshadowing of what was to come, which I think is really clever. Mm. Yeah, and and what I was going to say was that if you if you get the book and you turn it over, on the back sleeve, the words are every generation has a hero. Um, mm. So again, it implies to your point, Dave, in this generation, the hero is well, who the hero is is up for interpretation, but it's effectively Ray. Um, Luke from the original trilogy and well the prequel trilogy gets a bit blurry because is it Anakin? Maybe maybe not. Is it Obi-Wan? I don't know. <laughs> but that's that I think that's a conversation for a completely different podcast. Um but yeah, it's it's funny how just a small what is it, three lines, three sentences to a certain extent, would initially give so much more to the film than we had anyway. But yeah. It also reinforces what Ali and myself have said that this is the Palpatine saga, it's not the Skywalker saga I mean I agree with Dave but I know you, you might not Alex but um... uh, I, yeah no, uh, no if, I mean you could argue it's the Sith saga to a certain extent well you could, uh, you could. Yeah, you, you could, could but it's, it's one particular Sith see I, I, I understand what you mean, but he is underpinning the saga, but the saga isn't about him. Because, it is. It is. No, no, it isn't. It isn't. Because when you think of, even, his, even in that opening speech, the great error, which yeah. was how he died, and he died at the hands of, 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 of literally at the hands of Anakin Skywalker, who was saved by his son, Luke Skywalker. You know, the chosen one was Anakin Skywalker. And at the end of the movie, Rey is a Skywalker. Now, whether or not you agree with that turn of phrase, whatever, but effectively she is, and that's that's what's there. Um, and you have a Skywalker, technically, again, underpinning and being the undoing of the Sith. Okay, but, but, but... The first film is literally called The Phantom Menace, about him. The entire first trilogy is about his raise to power and how he eventually starts the Clone War, takes everything mm-hmm. over. The, the, it turns out the, the original trilogy is about That's how, we how lost he dies, how he lost it all. It's about him again. And then the final bit is about him having a fight with his own family and blood to either continue the Palpatine legacy or end it. And at the end of the day, his granddaughter is still the person who keeps going. So I, I think it is the Palpatine story. The Skywalkers, the, the Skywalkers are players in his story. Yeah, exactly, for me. And that quite, all changed from this last film. <laughs> yeah, quite important players. Yeah, but, but players... And, and also, then, if you if you then link into what we find out in in the, the Rise of Skywalker, 
the fact that he created Snoke, the fact that he has been the voice of Vader in Ben and then um, Kylo Ren's head. Mm. It is always him. It has yeah. always been him. Like so, he, yeah, he was manipulating Anakin to make Anakin become his pawn. May Anakin, have made Anakin. <laughs> he may have made Anakin, yes. Um, Anakin then became his pawn. Anakin became his servant. Ultimately, Anakin did turn on him. But he then jumped a generation or two generations ahead because he was thinking the long game because that's the way Palpatine was. And he then starts to subvert the next generation of Skywalkers. Question. Now, this has not got anything to do with the book whatsoever, but it is tied into this topic. Palpatine... So let, let, let's run with the idea, because obviously it's true that he was, a, he was alive, he was moving his consciousness between clone after clone, and we'll get to the clone bit in just a minute. Um, <laughs> I was going to say... Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, I know. Um, mm. But if he was there, so powerful, so ultimately unkillable, for want of a better word, why didn't he try to influence Luke Skywalker, who he knew was ever-present, who he knew was there, I mean, he didn't know that Ben Solo was going to come. Well, he probably did. Yeah. He predicted everything. But anyway, if if Luke was so ripe for the taking, why didn't he go after Luke? Why did he have to wait for his Luke? I think I think the book explains that. I think the book literally touches on that and says how he thought that he could turn Luke, and he wouldn't make that mistake with Ben. Mm. And Luke was his un- Luke is his, Luke is his undoing. Yeah, Luke. Well, Luke. Yes and no. Was, yeah, yeah, clearly. Luke, yeah, yeah. Luke. Luke was too pure, yeah. and yeah, so he couldn't, he couldn't subvert him. But then, if you then look at the rise uh, at the Last Jedi, so if we're tying this now into the fact that it's always Snoke was never Snoke. Snoke was always a puppet, a manifestation. Of, yeah, a, yeah, a Palpatine. And Snoke managed to twist Luke's perception enough that he hesitated and almost turned on his nephew. Yeah. So he, he was still manipulating Luke, even after Luke thought that he was dead. Kind of arguments are that those that we all know is how butchered Luke Skywalker was in The Last yeah. Jedi by Ryan Johnson. I so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, but that's actually, because of Palpatine. Yeah, no, it's I'm, I'm really actually bad writing. But... Well, it is, yeah. But, 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 but that's the story, which makes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. I feel like for people that like the film, I think it kind of. I think parts of the Last Jedi make more sense to me because of the book. I know, I know like you might not agree, but I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think. Be... Okay, we're moving beyond the book in a way here. Yeah, I was going to say, we should probably get back to the book. This is probably a wider discussion with everyone else in the podcast. Shock horror, the Jedi Council are going off topic. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say that. I think the the Rise of Skywalker as a film did make some of the painful things in the last jedi more palatable however because the film didn't go into the level of depth that the book does it 
only applied maybe a band-aid to some of the the, the wounds inflicted by the last jedi mm. whereas i feel that the novel because the novel's been so well written and because the novel goes into that extra level that added value that you've mentioned alex i think the the band-aid actually becomes a proper cure to some extent of some of the problems in the last jedi yeah 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 and before we move on to the last point i have one final thing that in the skywalker versus palpatine conversation one of the other reasons why for me anyway it's not the palpatine it is the skywalker is because you have leia now she may not be a jedi well she is and that's the next topic of conversation but she again is pure even in the book there well, is comments by um by luke saying that she has never been tempted by the dark she was always pure she was always right she was always delight as it were well, um, and again, she is that ever present and only gave herself to the force to save her son. So, and by saving her son, we have the Skywalker legacy living on through Ray, blah, blah, blah. So I'll, I'll stop talking about Palpatine versus Skywalker. But again, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle in why it's more of a Skywalker saga than Palpatine for me anyway. Well, okay, we'll get to it later because I think we're going to talk about Luke in this book a bit later and I think he's as critical to he's more critical than we realise to Leia's decision process in that yes yes agree actually well this might not be on the agenda we were thinking of but let's let's kind of run with that um, run with that idea in that Luke is a hell of a lot more present in the book than he is in the film you know um, and if we don't get sight of Luke, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, we don't see him until he catches the lightsaber that Ray throws in the fire, right? Yes. Correct. Right. So that's when we ultimately get to see Luke, which is about an hour and a half-ish. It's in the, the, it's in the last water, probably. Yeah. Whereas in the book, we hear his voice. He is constantly mm. speaking to Leia, in, influencing some of the things that she does or says and then influencing things in the wider aspect of the story as well now while the difficulty might have been in the movie to have done that without him just coming back as a false ghost all the time i'm not sure how they could have done it but having it in the book and it just adds a hell of a lot more what do you think so dave and i spoke about this it's one of the things we did talk about a little bit on the in the vlog last night so I think first that's interesting is, is that Leia's health is really recognised as being poor because of what happened in The Last Jedi and the fact that her Mary Poppins scene took out a lot of her life force to be able yeah. to achieve that, which I thought was, was really interesting. And I, I don't think it would be that difficult, actually, to have had just a voice appear every so often. just Because we all know Mark Hamill and Luke Skywalker's voice. If you just heard him saying Leia or something and her, I, I know it was difficult because you didn't have the film footage. This is the problem. But I don't yeah, think, I think it would that, have been. I think that was the issue. Yeah. I think that was the issue because when you get Luke's voice in the book, you get Leia responding to it. 
Yeah. And that's just something that they couldn't do. Yeah. So, you know, just a glance or something. But you, I don't know. I just feel like they could have found it, the footage. And, of course, what's really interesting is, is that we find out that Leia's not only communicating with just Luke, she's also talking to Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda as well. Mm. So that, that's kind of interesting that the, the layer that we, until The Last Jedi, hadn't really seen anything to do with the Force yeah. in, in, in The Rise of Skywalker, suddenly, yes, we do see her training, etc. But it goes even further than that than perhaps we'd realise, which I think is really, really interesting part of her character development that unfortunately we just didn't get to see on film. I agree. Yeah, I mean, even when you think the story goes down to the the, the, the way that she has her own lightsaber um, and, you know, the fact that she... We'll get into the training scene in just a minute, but yeah, how Luke coerces her from a training, but how Luke is that ever-present in her mind. And again, where... it Does it make the scene in, in The Last Jedi make a bit more sense? I think it does. Um but again, it's another retrospective fix um, of of something that really wasn't explained. But going back to kind of Luke's um, behind the scenes work, if you want to call it that, um, I, it, it, it made me laugh how in the movie we get kind of comments from Ray, but in the book there's a constant struggle where she's really concerned why Master Luke hasn't communicated with her. Mm. Yeah. Um, so and she's blaming herself. Yeah, she doesn't. She thinks she's not doing it right, or she thinks she's letting him down. There's always Ooh. that self, the self doubt inside of her. But to then obviously come out and save his lightsaber effectively was such an interesting way to kind of bring himself to her. Because if you think of when the first time Luke saw Obi Wan was on Hoth when he was battered by that um, bumper. One path, thank you. Um, on the verge, not so not, it may not be on the verge of dying, but he wasn't in, in great health either. Um, and you know, the, the, the scenarios how they kind of get displayed as, as a false ghost is obviously very different from character to character. Um, but I think if we'd have to your point, mate, if we'd have had Luke in there just a little bit more, um, not necessarily there all the time, but even if it's a voice, I mean, when we look at the scene where Ray becomes all the Jedi. We don't see them as false ghosts. We just hear their voices. Yeah, which which I think the book, seeing as we kind of jump a little bit, but I think the book explains that really well because obviously I, I didn't quite understand why we didn't see the false ghosts at the time. I thought that was a real mistake, particularly Hayden Christensen. But mm. if you think about it, the book kind of explains that she would have no idea who these people are other than Luke. Mm. So they're yeah. just voices to her. And it makes it very clear in the book. It doesn't name who's speaking what part. Yes. And I thought, okay, I kind of actually understand. It's just been like, who are these people? What? <laughs> so I kind of got it a bit more. Yeah, and it's interesting. You get fans that have actually listened to that scene over and over again and actually written down who's saying what, or who they think they are that's saying what. But that's a that's a different conversation entirely. Um, yeah. But I think his his presence does tie in nicely uh, to the next thing that we get a lot more context around. And again, it goes back to Leia. And it goes back to her training as a Jedi. So obviously in the movie, we see that scene that I think, it, it blew me away anyway. Um, I think it's blown away a few fans to see the younger Luke, the younger Leia going at it with a lightsaber fight. And obviously Leia seemingly besting Luke 
in that particular scene, and which was a great flashback. But obviously in the book, we get a hell of a lot more references to her. And I think what would be interesting, and again, it could be limited by the footage, is why we didn't get that in the film. Because, you know, if they were willing to put her being trained by Luke in that particular scene, I mean, surely you would have thought they could have done that for other scenes as well? Well, yeah, they, they did say, they did say, on the run-up to the movie, I remember J.J. Abrams saying that he they were going to attempt to not use CGI to, to bring Leia back. And I think for the most part they attempted that. And, but, but the only way of getting a young Leia is to do a bit of CGI. Do you think um, partly as well, because obviously the CGI feedback of Tarkin and also Leia in Rogue One wasn't universally appreciated. And obviously there's a lot of things about using image rights after an actor dies. Um, do you think that also Disney probably thought they'd want to stay away from that? Well, I, I don't know about the latter, because Billy Lord was involved. Um, and the people that knew Carrie Fisher knew that she had a love and affection for the Star Wars movies and also for for Mark Hamill. So I, I would say that there probably wasn't a worry about using footage of her mm. because of her being dead. Um, the, the potential feedback about her, um, about CGIing her, that people might not have appreciated right, yeah. that. I could, I could understand that, yeah. Because I think that was like one of the Rogue One things that people didn't like. And actually, I thought it was really I, I, cool. I like that, to be fair. Mm. But I think, I think it's a question about the rights of people after they've died and the dignity of using their likeness. There's mm -hmm. an ethical question to it more than a delivery as such. But then you, you could argue the same about using J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings when you made his movie. The rights was granted by his son. Sure, but, but the, the, the thing is, is, is obviously, so it's quite it's a huge sideways thing. But the thing is, is, so say if you have a famous actor like James Dean, and you limited number of films, you can now bring him back to life and make him do roles that he never would have done in his life. Or do things he wouldn't have done. And so there's huge sort of legal consequence to doing this sort of thing, and it's quite an argument as to what is right and what is wrong with this. Sorry, I, this, is, this is my day job getting involved, where I worked in a law firm and sort of helped with our kids on this. <laughs> it's, it is an interesting one, that's for certain. Um, I don't know if it's why they might not have done it. Um, it could be just the fact that they run out of time and thought if we just throw in the scene that we see her being trained by Luke with a lightsaber, that's that's going to be it. But um, but again, having the context in the book of what she did and didn't do and how they actually trained on the same planet that they're training Ray on now, um, I think that was quite quite a nice little tie-in. That was clever, that. Yes. Yeah. Um, it, it meant that you actually saw the training scene earlier in the book than you did in the movie. 
Yeah, because that's the first scene in the book. It's her going through the training, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and again, it kind of adds more context, for want of a better word, uh, to how her training was and how Leia knows how to train her. Because we, again, up until that point, we didn't know the length and type of training that Leia had had had, had by Luke. Whereas obviously this book really emphasizes that she's been through quite a lot. Um, and I can't remember where in the book this is. And you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, guys. There's a bit where she, doesn't she hover? And Luke's a bit yep. like, how on earth did you do that type thing? Yeah. Yep. Um, so, again, it kind of just adds to the fact that she was a Jedi. Uh, I'm going to call her that because she was. Um, and without going too much into the EU, it's good to see that because that was a part of the EU. And now you, we know the story it kind of matches the EU to a certain extent where she was a trained, she was trained, she had a Jedi, she had a lightsaber, but then she chose politics, um, which again is very similar to the EU, if memory serves correct, Dave. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it's, it's again, it's nice to see these components of the EU getting thrown in. Um, maybe JJ did that as a bit of a fan service because that's what he's been kind of accused of for this particular movie. Who knows? But I really liked it. So. No, totally agree. Totally agree. Um, not a bad way to do it, neither. Yeah, very subtly, actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it, it also then brings some balance to, again, The Last Jedi and the fact that you had the Mary Poppins moment. It's a case of, well, where where's mm. this come from? This is It's never been alluded to before. So the novel and the film are almost trying to fix the problem of the film before. Yeah, and you always obviously get that extra bit about Luke that we hadn't previously seen either through this training in particular. You find out, you know, he's sort of encouraging her to to go a bit further by antagonising her slightly in the way that maybe Yoda did to him. Um, And we never saw that, that character side because when we got to The Force Awakens, you got well, Luke at the end, we, we didn't see, mm. we didn't see any of this. So I thought being able to visually create that in your mind was, was really good for the, for the fan. Yes. And that takes us back to something that we discussed previously about the fact that there wasn't enough interaction between the characters in these new films. And again, it's, it's providing that little bit of, the shared screen time or in the novel, the shared mind time of Luke and Leia together in happier times. Yeah. And, but there is zero reason as well when Carrie Fisher was alive, that this wasn't in the force awakens other than a director's decision. Yeah. Yeah. But they've learned from their mistakes, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Three Can we finish in. that bit? Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, so, obviously, the story progresses. Um, and then in the movie, we're kind of thrown into the scene where Kylo Ren and Stormtroopers are kind of going at it on a red planet that I don't, I don't think it was actually confirmed to have been Mustafar in the movie. But I think mm-hmm. a lot of people before, when they saw the trailer section of it, and they were like, it's got to be. It's the only planet, Star Wars planet that's ever been red or whatever. Um, so a lot of people put the two and two together and then obviously in the book, it really does 
come out and say it, that they're on Mustafa um, and it really does expand on that particular scene where Kylo Ren finds this way, way and he said Ray finder there. Uh, um, sort of. Where is he? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. Um, where he finds the Wayfinder. Um, but we get something in the book that didn't even come close to being in the movie, from what I understand. Um, and that's the story of this, like, spider-type creature. Um, I did make a note of the name of it, but I can't find where I put it. Um, Eye of Webbish Bog. Thank you. Uh, I must admit, when I read this, when I saw the name, I straight away had this vision of Lord of the Rings, um, where in Lord of the Rings there's a, a spider creature. Shellob. Yeah, Shellob. I, I yeah. imagine first thing I thought of was that, and I don't know why. Yeah. But maybe it's because I've seen the, the film and the book and whatnot. But that's the first thing that I thought of when I saw when I read this. Um, but as well as kind of introducing that particular spider character, it. She says something on the lines of he has passed the test of Darth Vader because they are protecting his memory or whatever it is. Um, they're they're again, like cultists, aren't That's it, yeah. They're kind of really protecting his 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 planet, to say anything, because we all know that Mustafar was, you know, that's where his castle was. That's obviously where we know what happened at the end of Revenge of the Sith. Um, but I think that really does add more to his legacy, to being the grandson of Darth Vader, to the legacy of him being, I only said good enough, because it's probably bad enough is probably the better word, um, being evil enough, there you go, being evil enough to kind of step in his footsteps. And it's something else that he was clearly begging for. And that for him as a Darth Vader fanboy, obviously the grandson, that, that must have been huge for him to have been told he's passed his grandfather's test. Yeah. So Sorry to be contrary, unlike me, I know, Alex. But, but just so you know, they actually did build the spider and they they actually oh, filmed they it yeah they actually built it oh, and cool. they filmed it so it's one of those things which is a scene that they cut because apparently they didn't have enough time in the film um but it's 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 there so maybe it's something we'll see in the future but oh, it was, it was on the uh well apparently there's no extras on the blu-ray no deleted scenes really there's a uh, there's a there's a documentary though isn't there yeah, there's a documentary, but there's no, there's no, there's no deleted scenes, and the digital version's out in America, so we we probably would have seen it because normally you get them on the Apple version as well. Wow, I wonder if they're saving it for this nine edition, twenty-seven disc mega four K ultra edition. Yeah, maybe they're saving it for that. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's very very possible. But I just thought, that, sorry, I, I will let you continue. But I just thought. I'd, before someone said that they built it, that they did. Oh, that's not being contrary. That's just telling me something I didn't know. So that's, that's all good. Um, I'll, let, I'll let you have that one. That's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think the scene itself is, is really good to add to his legacy, you know. Um, and again, interesting, we didn't get it in the film. Maybe it was because of, of time or whatever. But I think that would yeah, have well, been a, quite a fun thing to have had. Well, I think it adds an, an extra layer, and who always saying it adds an extra layer to Vader, because yeah. these people were sworn to protect. Firstly, the people which you see him kill with quite a degree of ease, but these are in the book described as you know people who are just devoted to Vader, the first line of defence. And then there is a further way where his castle used to be, the ruins, and nearby. I think it talks about the crushed ash of it. Um, 
and and that's that's saying you know just how powerful that that Mustafa became to Vader and the people of Mustafa really uh, revert revert no were re- had reverence for Lord Vader, revered yep revered Vader. So I thought it was really cool. Dave, I'm finished. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't. I didn't realise you was like leaving that open for me. Apologies. <laughs> Sorry, it's because we're used to seeing each other after yesterday, Dave. <laughs> it is. It is. Yes, that's where it is. That's where it is. Probably, we should blame <clears throat> Alex. Probably Alex's fault. It's all Alex's fault. It's always my fault. Yeah. I'm, it's, it's, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm on a show with the contrary twins, for God's sake. So you need to be a, a proper anchor for us, Alex. Yep. I'm going to edit that out. Um, <laughs> I'm the editor as well as the anchor, don't forget. Uh, <laughs> no. Um, so then we get more details about the thing that was leaked literally the day the preview books were kind of sent out. Um, and this caused quite a bit of stir in the fandom. But as well as a bit of a stir, I think it's given a lot of fans a bit of comfort to a certain extent. Some, well, some more than others, because some thought this was a really good thing. Some didn't think it was a good idea, but I like it. And that's the confirmation that the Palpatine that we see in The Rise of Skywalker is a clone. And then the additional context that it's not the first clone, it's the first of many. And I, for one... Knowing where we went with clones in episode two, knowing that they have been ever present to a certain extent in the Star Wars universe, I thought that was quite an interesting way to have taken Palpatine. And for me, is the only plausible explanation of how he survived. And again, it's another callback to the EU. This was done in the Dark Empire comic books, uh, books. So for me, again, it's Lucasfilm taking something that was quite well uh, appreciated to a certain extent in the EU, bringing it into canon and doing something with it. You know, should have we have got this explanation in the movie, guys? I think so, yes. Because there's too much ambiguity in the, in the film. You, you, you could have... I did. I, I'm like, I, I'll hold my hand up to this. I assumed from watching the movie that the Palpatine that you saw on screen was the remains of the Palpatine that was thrown down the, the, the shaft because it was in such poor condition. My assumption was that it's it's a reanimated corpse and he requires um, life to, to for his sustenance. And, and that was the way it it appeared for me on screen. So the book, I remember when the first leak was put out there, my first, because we, we had a debate about it on Twitter, I think, Alex, just, just you and me, because we were debating it. And my view was, no, no, that can't be true, because that was never the way it looked. If, if you were in a clone, then a clone would be in much better condition than that. Whereas the way that the book really goes into the detail of that, and again, this is one of the, the brilliant ways that the book has covered it, it does explain it and it does provide you with the, the background as to why 
the clone is in such poor condition. It really adds to it. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and when he goes in his speech around how it's not the first clone and, you know, how the, the clones can't handle the power of the Sith. Yes. Um, yeah. And then obviously when we see him, his fingers are like decaying away. I'm like, now it even makes more sense thinking about it retrospectively, why he looks the way he does. Um, so I saw people online and they were like, Oh, but he looked like this, you know, when he when he when he was at the end of Return of the Jedi, because he was old and haggard and you know affected by the false lightning from his Revenge of the Sith. It was like he looked nothing like that in this. He looked like a creepy zombie. <laughs> Let's yes. be honest. Yeah, he did. Um, where and you know we said that in our first review that this was kind of on par with a horror movie. The way the flashing lights, the the imagery, the the, the cinematography of that particular scene. So his decaying clone, as it were, seems to be the best way that they've explained how he survived and how when he was hurtling his way down the uh, the uh, core of the Death Star 2 how he flung his consciousness to somewhere that wasn't I think the words are they weren't I wasn't fully prepared for it or something like that wasn't it yeah yes well yeah, yeah. Well, well where Exegol wasn't fully prepared for it yes yeah and, well, and that, he, that again sorry I was just saying that then linked quite nicely back into the opening um, speech by Palpatine to correct the errors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing was, because the body was so um, dilapidated, as you said, I, I kind of thought that maybe they'd recovered his body, his original body, mm. and kind of done that. So to have that clarification on the clone and the way that it was done and the fact that he had got um, Darth Plagueis's knowledge and the fact that he could cheat death, it, it was kind of interesting the way it all tied in. I thought that was one of the better bits of tying into previous episodes of, of Star Wars. Yeah, totally. Again, another way the book is... It's funny, when, when I first watched, this is really off tangent, but roll with me here. The first time I read Lord of the Rings, the, the trilogy, was before the movies came out. And then I knew the movies were going to come out, so I reread the trilogy all over again. And then when I watched the film, whilst I thoroughly enjoy the films, and I think the trilogy is amazing, I still enjoy the books more than the film. And this book is now... Technically, technically the other way around because I saw the film first and I really enjoyed the film but then the book came out but I liked the book more um, so it's kind of like if we'd have got uh, we said this at the top of the show you know if there was a movie of the book it'd be great rather than the book being an expansion of the movie yes yeah are we all agreeing on something for the first time <laughs> yeah well, Can I just you say, finally come to the right opinion, Alex. Oh, from a contrary... Well, the thing is, this isn't even contrary. This is this is this seems to be quite a, a common theme that the book really does add more to the movie, right? This is the way. <laughs> Indeed, this is the way. I have spoken. Um, <laughs> so, um, the, the other thing that I wanted to quickly touch on from an Exegol perspective was Again, going back to the start of the book where Ray has a dream. Now, I, as I was reading this, 
I stopped, took a couple of minutes, and I had to think, and I'm still thinking about it now. Did we see Ray have that dream in the movie? Yeah, sort of. It's a flashback mm. during the training. Right. Yeah. It's when oh, first yeah, Dark yeah. Ray. Yeah. In the frame. Because no, I was thinking that, because I, I, obviously where they've moved the stuff around, I'm like, we didn't get this at the start of the film. Um, but yes, no, you're right. We got it in the training scene. Because that, that kind of ties into the next thing that we were going to quickly talk about was, listen, this will be a very quick one, but Ray's lightsaber. So we're we not going to talk about the the dad clone. Uh oh yeah yeah might as well while we're here yeah 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 go on then. Because because obviously this was a bit as well because Ray's connection to Palpatine always seemed a bit odd. The fact that Palpatine had a son out there where it turns out it's not actually a son. It's it's a it's a clone that actually worked but sort of failed at the same time and it and it's. It's really, really interesting because it ties into other things as well. Because in it, the the clone is described, uh, described sorry, as a strand cast who Palpatine despised for his disappoint, disappointing ordinariness. And of course, you may have heard the word strand cast before, both of you, because we've heard it in the Mandalorian, where Baby Yoda was called a strand cast. Oh, I've missed that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was. Always, I'm not going to say his name. It's Carl. It's Carl. It's um, Apollo Creed. He talks about it. Uh, I think I can't remember if it's in six or oh, seven. Oh, Grief But he talks about he talks about the strand cast. Oh. Okay. I'm right. Okay. Go back and rewatch the Mandalorian all over again now. Watch him. Disney Plus comes out on Tuesday. Happy days. No, yeah, I I don't remember. I didn't pick that up. But no, that's a that's a great catch if that's the case. And again, it's an interesting. uh, Again, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, but something else that appeared in the Mandalorian first, to a certain extent, and then happened again in the movie, which was the full ceiling. Yes. Yeah. Because we know that Baby Yoda did it, and now we know Ray can do it. And Ben Solo to a certain extent. Um, so, and again, it's quite nice. We're jumping way forward here, but the explanation of how Ben does it is good because it links back to the fact that Ray had done it to him. Yeah, I must admit when I when I saw her heal the snake. Um, and maybe I'm jumping to the next point, but I'll do it anyway. But when I saw her heal the snake, I was like, okay, this is going to be another Ezra. This is going to be another Anakin that seemed to have a way of not talking to animals because they're not Dr. Doolittle, but, you know, have a, have a false connection with, with, with animals. You know, we've seen that in the Rebels cartoon. We've seen it with Anakin in, um, Clone Wars and to a certain extent, uh, Attack of the Clones as well. But obviously this is something completely different and it's the false healing because then obviously we see Ray kill Kylo Ren and then effectively heal Ben Solo if we're really being predictive about it. Um, for then Ben Solo to then do it back to her, which I thought was pretty cool the way that they did that as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was quite nice. And again, that's that's one of this, this things about 
the book creating balance within the story. Yeah. Absolutely. It's as if the balance is reappearing all over again uh, from a force and from a storytelling perspective. But um, I took us away from the, the, the parent thing. Ali, I don't think you was finished talking about the parent piece there, was you? Um, well, I just, no, not really, because what what we kind of learned from it is, is that the clone father of Ray discussed Palpatine in every mm. possible way. But Imperfect. Yeah, but he does recognise, and I think it literally says, the more natural ways of reproduction could be useful for his future vessel. Yes. Which I kind of thought was kind of interesting. Because obviously, if he did use magic to create Anakin, and he's cheated death, and he's trying to find the perfect vessel, um, and he sees this as being his way forward... Um, which is kind of interesting because it kind of then obviously this clone wouldn't be necessarily force sensitive maybe may not but it kind of maybe does make Ray a nobody still so it kind of like how it closes both of those things so just okay so go back to the Anakin thing there are yep. we saying that okay because we know that Palpatine did create Anakin or well the, the comics allude to it quite strongly yeah um, yeah so the suggestion there is that Palpatine deliberately creates Anakin so that he's creating his future vessel for him to then inhabit as his own vessel ages. I don't I don't think that because I don't because I don't think he saw Luke coming and him being killed at that point. No, but he would have been thinking that, uh, yeah. Because, yeah. because I think he, he would have thought that Exegol would have been completed by the time he needed the transference. True, yes. So, so I suppose that then goes back to Anakin was then always created as a henchman. Well, there's this, there's this interesting point about the dyad, and in the book it actually says, how the Emperor thought he could create a dyad with Anakin, but mm. that he couldn't. Yeah. Uh, and I might be jumping ahead, as per usual, but this Don't is where... <laughs> this is where my one issue about the book is present. Um, because the whole rule of two law gets... It doesn't get changed, it does get altered, but it does at the same time. Because the book tells us that Palpatine sees the rule of two as a lesser version of the dyad. Yes. Now, there has never ever been, as from what we know in the literature anyway, and this is me being a protector of the EU to a certain extent, in the EU, we know that Darth Bane created the Rule of Two because he saw that too many Sith caused numerous problems. Yes. And in his book, Dynasty of Evil, or is it Path of Destruction? Which, which I, the first book in the Darth Bane trilogy, 
he creates the rule of two and then expands it in the second book, the rule of two with Darth Zanna and sets the precedent of the rule of two forevermore for a thousand years until Palpatine up until where mm. we see the movie. Yes. There's never been any mention of a dyad existing prior to Rise of Skywalker. Now, if Palpatine has always had this vision of a dyad being superior to the rule of two, maybe he did create Anakin to be his dyad, for want of a better word, knowing that he would have that relationship. But then if he did, if he did create him to pass his consciousness to him, knowing that all the Sith passed their knowledge on once they've died, that completely goes against the rule of two as well. Yes. And I, I really enjoyed this book. Don't, I'm not taking anything away from it. And Ali, I, I messaged you, I think pretty much as soon as I got to that chapter, when it starts talking about the diet and the rule of two. And I said, nothing is sacred in Star Wars anymore. I think that's a massive over-exaggeration on my part. Oh. But um, <laughs> You did. <laughs> um, and, but I'm reading this going, the, 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 I kind of get now how certain fans might have felt throughout different things happening in the movie where they've become quite protective. And I don't mean to be argumentative of this particular thing, but this section of the book for me it lost me this is the only part in the book where it completely lost me because i read it i thought are you kidding me right now maybe i am overreacting i don't know but where the rule of two has been laid in law for a thousand years then all of a sudden a concept of a dyad is introduced to serve the purpose of a movie Again, it could be because it's a reaction to things that have happened in other movies. I don't know, whatever. I, I, I think that's what it is. I think that all we see in this is because of The Last Jedi. I, I think we, we probably wouldn't have had this entire dyad thing. Because it, it it's never been mentioned before. It's never been a thing. And all of a sudden, it becomes the entire reason behind this movie to some extent exactly so again I'm not wedded to it and I don't really care about this as much as you guys uh, I think that's partly because my interpretation of the dyad should be different in terms of the perfect dyad that we see is Ray and Ben, Kylo Ren, whatever you want to call him, who both have dark and light present in them throughout the entire trilogy. And so the perfect dyad is perfect balance. But, but, but the, the, idea is that they only become the perfect diet when they both give up the dark I don't think they do because that's when they have the most power yeah that's that's when they have the power to resist Palpatine the moment that the pair of them have given up the dark they completely trust if if they'd gone the other way if they'd both gone dark side I think they'd have had the same power I, I don't think they would have done because Sith are inherently 
jealous, yes. inherently chaotic, mm-hmm. inherently selfish. Because if, if you have a look at the path to the Jedi and the path to the Sith, the, the Jedi is all about peace, harmony, sharing, caring. The, the Sith is all about taking, forcing, self, yes. selffulness rather than selfish, uh, selflessness. Okay. So I don't think, and, and again, I can see where Alex is going with this, because there's, Sith could never form a dyad because they are inherently selfish. The Sith code is peace is a lie, there is only passion. Through passion I gain strength, through strength I gain power, through power I gain victory, through victory my chains are broken, the force shall set me free. Mm. Now, to me, when you read that, it's all about strength and power and gaining something over somebody else, whereas a dyad seems to be a working partnership in the force. And the rule of two has always reinforced that. Because the rule of two is that the moment that the master weakens, the student takes from the master what the student wants for power. Yeah. And the idea is that the teacher teaches the student to become powerful enough to beat them because they have taught them everything that they learn. And what they don't yeah. learn, they get it through Sith holocrons. Now, yeah. again, that's... But, Go on. But, but I, I get what you're saying. But even in modern times, we've seen Asajj Ventress be the apprentice of Darth... Of, of, um, not sorry, of Darth Tyrannus. Is that, is that how you pronounce yeah. it? Yeah. So you know Darth what I mean? Okay. So we've seen that. We've seen the... Um, Darth Maul took on an apprentice when he was, I know he's not a Sith at this point but he does, and we know that even when um, the Emperor has an apprentice, he keeps Darth Maul on the side, now we don't know quite what happened to him, so I think the rule of two is more of a generic interpretation that I don't hold particularly strong to, because I've seen all this since I've really been that interested in Star Wars Well, I I would disagree with that Um, um, being contrary, um, <laughs> because I I think that the rule of two was always there. It was Palpatine and Maul until Maul appears to die. Then Palpatine then cultivates Tyrannus, who he'd probably already been mind bending and twisting yeah. to, to his knee. But he wasn't necessarily his apprentice. He then becomes his apprentice when Maul. Maul's. When Maul comes back, Maul doesn't come back as a Sith. Maul comes back as a as a dark side user of the Force, but he's not a Sith. And when Dooku takes Asajj Ventress, she isn't his, and I don't think she's ever named as his apprentice. She is called his apprentice. I thought she was she was targeted as a Sith assassin, and that was the way that she was phrased. Yeah, she literally she... calls him master, and, and she's yeah, hidden yeah. from the emperor. But yes, but that's that's more Tyrannus wanting to use his power and wanting yeah. to, to because everyone calls him master. But it still breaks that. You see, I, I don't think this rule is as strict as, as you guys, and I get why because you read the EU and that. But I think for most people, it it, it wouldn't be as big. 
Mm. Oh, no, I know. I, I, I have got no issue with the idea that Palpatine was potentially going to try and create the dyad with Anakin. Because he created Anakin and maybe that was his idea of the creation of Anakin. I think I think my issue because because if you if you also go down the rule of two idea, if if Palpatine's original plan had come to fruition with Maul, then Maul would have been his apprentice and Anakin would still have been created because Anakin was already in existence at that point. So well, no, no, I was going to say Palpatine could still have then created the because he created Anakin, so Palpatine could still have created the dyad with him. So, so I do think that Palpatine always had this plan for Anakin to become his to, to do the dyad idea. I just don't think that that links back into the wider rule of two. I don't think that's what the rule of two was for. So that, the, for me, the, the two things can sit side by side. The rule of two is what goes all the way back to the original Darth Bane and, and so on. Mm. Um, and it's, it's always been that the, the apprentice takes from the master and then becomes the master. But I do think that Palpatine was looking now to create this dyad with Anakin. Which because he didn't necessarily create Anakin to be his apprentice. He also yeah. became his apprentice, but he might not mm-hmm. have created him to do it to be that. Because then, when you think of how he wanted to manipulate Anakin to become Darth Vader, which obviously he did, but then I can't remember if it's in the novelization of Revenge of the Sith or one of the books that follow on from it, but. There's a comment that Palpatine makes saying that Anakin will never be as powerful as he should be because he's not. Not human. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's too much of a machine. Um, yes. And, and, you know, it's gone. I was, I was saying quite interestingly, um, I used to play the Star Wars role playing games. Uh, and we're talking about 20, 25. 30, 25 years, let's say, 30 years maybe tops. But I remember playing that. And I remember when you created a character, if you went down, you could go down the route of bionics for your character. So you could have augmentations in robotics and what have you. But if you did, you lost essence, which meant that your yeah. ability, if you were a force user, would be weaker. And, and at some point, you you sacrifice so much of your essence that you couldn't have any force ability because all all characters in in the the, the role play game was it west end games i think it might yeah. have been yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all characters were inherently carried some form of the force in them which you would use as luck and chance and what have you which quite nicely for me ties into the fact that i always thought that han solo was a non-aware force-sensitive, which is why he's, he was lucky. Um, and such a good pilot, perhaps. Yes, yes. Because he wasn't aware, he just he was in mm. tune with his force, nat- natural force ability. But when you, going back to the role-play game, 
as you sacrifice your humanity, you also sacrifice your your connection with the Force. I mean, when you think of how powerful Vader was, mm. and I think that just emphasises how powerful Anakin was. Yes. If he hadn't have had no arms and legs, man, he would have been an, he would have been even more of a monster than what he was. <laughs> yes. You know, um, but without taking the conversation away from the rule of two, but I think we might have gone through that enough. That does jump into another thing that gets explored a bit more in the book than in the movie. And that's Finn being blatantly full sensitive. Um, you know, in the movie, it's kind of alluded to. And in the movie, we know that he really wants to tell Ray something when they're going through the, yeah. um, the sandpit on Pasana. Yes, now's not the time. Why? When is yeah. the time? Yes. That's it, yeah. I really want to tell you something. And then obviously they get sucked in. Um, and in the film, we see that he's obviously kind of fault sensitive and it's kind of alluded to. But in the book, yeah, it's kind of there. It's clearly obvious that he's fault sensitive. Like, yeah. Yeah, and then it, it, they really explore it to the point where um, when he meets... Jania. Yeah, Daniel. Right. yeah. Yeah, Lando yeah. Carrizian's daughter. <laughs> or, well, maybe... maybe not. I don't know if she is. I, yeah, we, we discussed this on our podcast last night. So, again, we're jumping around a little bit here. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I feel that the way that novelization plays that, because it doesn't actually say that he is her dad. Instead... Correct. You you have that earlier bit in the in the book where it's really well explained why Landau is on the planet where they are, and why Land Landau Landau Lando why Lando is there, and why Lando is you're laughing at the, the way I've just pronounced that. Uh, so it, it, it explains really well why Lando is there, and and what he is searching for and what he has lost himself. And then you cut to the end scene where him and Jenny are, are sat talking. Mm. And in the film, because we discussed this last night, you have that really creepy old man grinning at a young girl without it ever being explained. And then off screen, yeah. there was the discussion where it's confirmed that he's her dad. And I, I don't like that as an excuse because that just makes everyone sound like the, the, everyone's related in Star Wars and they shouldn't be. Yeah. But it's quite nice that in the book, instead, he has a light bulb moment when he's talking to Jania that, you know what, I lost my child. She's lost her parents. There's bound to be other ex-stormtroopers who've lost their family and families who've lost their children let's try and find them and i thought that was a much nicer way of doing it and it then opens the door to a disney plus tv show well it does yes <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 the cynic in me uh thinking that but yeah yeah no uh, yeah no i totally agree with you mate it really does add to the it adds to the context, it adds to the feel of that growing relationship rather than some creepy old dude going, let's go find your parents, you know. Yes. <laughs> Which, in, in the scheme of things, after a too many conversations, it's really weird. 
I really want you to do more Lando impressions. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 no, um, <clears throat> that's enough. That's enough Landau uh, for today. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, so I think it's, it's interesting the way they do expand it, and it does add to it, which is which is really cool. Um, we've kind of ticked off a few of the things that we were going to talk about. There, we've covered Finn's full sensitivity, Lando's parentage potentially of of, of Janna, uh, all in all in one conversation there, which is pretty good. Anything else you wanted to add to them bits, Ali? Um, no, I agree completely with Dave. Gosh, I can't believe I say that so much these days. Um, but I do think um, one of the, the problems with the last couple of films has been, to me, that Finn was set up quite nicely in The, in the Force Awakens, but he's, his character development afterwards was kind of just a guy who shouts every so often a line. Ray! Yeah. Yeah, do you see what I mean? That's kind of what yeah. he kind of became. And I like that in the book, okay, it doesn't explore it, hugely but there's enough in the way that it's written to understand that yeah from the very start this guy has been force sensitive that's what that's what made him not yeah. shoot that laser gun at all and that's what's continued throughout and his he's become more comfortable in himself you know his hair's growing out that he he's connecting with the force in a different way as he gets his personality i kind mm. of thought that was really interesting uh, I'm asking. I like the way that's referenced in the book. How he's growing his hair out because it's against regulation. I was like, wow, yeah. they, they really are painting the picture that the uh, the first order are this em- empire esque army type uh, military organization, which I thought was pretty cool. I'm sure you both know this, but what did General Huck say about Kylo Ren? Oh, his hair's not regulation. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, his hair's too. One long. of the reasons uh, not to like him. And and that was it, wasn't it? He said, oh, when, when I when I become when I become supreme leader, um, he didn't say I'm going to make him cut his hair, but well, it's, it's one of the first things I'm going to do. Yeah, it was yeah. Oh, brilliant. It's so petty, um, but again, this this you kind of get the pettiness in Hux now, um, and why he ends up betraying him ultimately. I, I, to, to be fair, I thought Hux's character development in the book was really good. And and it's yeah. not something that is touched mm. upon in the movie. You just see him. You 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 don't really understand why he's turning on yeah. Kylo the way he is. Yeah, okay. You you could carry that over to the way he was bullied in the Last Jedi. Um, he might carry a resentment to uh, Kylo Ren because of the way he treated him towards the end of the movie. Mm. Um, but you you see it in in the novel and and it's almost a case of you could you could argue that what you're seeing and the way it's written in the novel would carry over all three movies the resentment has always been there the fact yeah. that he is he is the perfect soldier he always dresses immaculately he's always pristine he he he's bothered about the way the appearance is and even in The Force Awakens, Kylo was this almost like wild force of mm. nature that he resented. Mm. Yeah, Hux... Go on. Hux is a character we don't really talk about that often on the Jedi Council, but his journey from chilling speech as he's destroying multiple planets on Starkiller mm. Base 
to buffoon in um, the second film, you know, it's all in with you, all of yeah. that kind of stuff. And as you say, then bullied by Kylo Ren to then turn to Agent. It kind of just seems like it just jumped every time for him without any explanation as to yes. what was happening. Yeah. And so I, I yeah. just wanted to reiterate a point, Dave, that I completely agree with you, that yeah. I kind of saw more why his decisions, and then you're talking about um, Admiral Pre-Adams and his appearance out of nowhere, and now he's above Hux as well in the ranking. That kind mm. of stuff would, would annoy. I think, I think my, you see, one of my problems with the film, and, and we just, I've mentioned this before, was that it was so close to the rebel storyline of a turncoat that I was kind of like, oh, I've seen this before in Star Wars, not that interesting. But I think in the book, it's it's got a lot more layers to it, which actually makes it interesting. Yeah, yeah, you actually, despite Hooks being what he is, and he is a bit of a sniffle, and he is a little bit of a of a creepy character, you actually feel some sympathy towards him because of the way he sees Kylo Ren as 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 a success and he's he's making something and he's going somewhere and he's in charge and it's like inside it's really painful for Hooks to witness that because it's everything that shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. He's unkempt, he's 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 just he's he's not organized, he's not structured and he's he shouldn't be this person. And and that resentment is just bubbling away underneath and, and I really like the way that's explored with Hooks. It's when you think of Hux in The Force Awakens, he kind of his relationship with, with Kylo Ren is effectively Vader and Tarkin in a, to a certain extent like we yes. do in The New Hope. Then the progression in The Last Jedi where he basically becomes... A punchback. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, can't, you can't, I can't really place another character that's like that in the Star Wars no. universe. But then when you get to Rise of Skywalker, to Ali's point, he becomes callous, you know, from Rebels. It's as if they can't make his mind up what they want him to be as a character. Yet the fa- yeah, but the character's foundations is, you know, it's all there. And, and dare I say, in the Marvel comic where they explore his character, you know, we know that he killed his father to get promoted within the, within the First Order. He's relatively young to be in the position that he is. He's a very strong-minded, strong-willed, determined individual. And we kind of see that in the first first film, The Force Awakens. But then he just falls off a cliff dramatically in the next two films. Yes. Yeah. But but the book does some method, does some measure of trying to rectify that. And I like that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think the book saves his character a little bit. Mm. For want of a better word. Um, and it's, it's interesting how, again, the other thing that we really get in this, this book that is not in the movie at all is how we see Hux take great pride to, to, to kind of Ali's point where he goes to, to, to Priad and say, we have got a prisoner and it's Chewie. So we all know what happens. Chewie gets... Um, captured on Persona. I still, I'd love to see that scene because I honestly cannot see how two of the Knights of Ren could take on Chewie. I, I really don't. Um, 
unless there's like eight of them that are there, but you don't see, I don't remember seeing that many um, with Chewy. I mean, unless they're not there, you know, eight against one, even though he's a Wookiee, that's still a bit, you know, the, the, the favor is with the eight for the most part, especially if they've been trained with by Kylo Ren. But I'm like, so that's, that's a very different conversation, but the scene obviously in the book is the torture scene then between Kylo Ren and, or Ben to a certain extent, um, and Chewie and how a couple of things are quite interesting in that where he kind of knows it's Chewbacca, which is, I think what he's called, Uncle, Uncle Chewie, I think is what he calls him in the book. Mm, yeah. Well, he's alluded to calling him, right? Um, but then he walks in and says, unchains him. He's like, just kill me. I've killed Han Solo. Interesting that he called him Han Solo rather than my father, but I think that's because he's still trying to be Kylo Ren. Um, he's like, I've killed Han Solo. Kill me now. But Chewie just doesn't. Yes. And, but, yeah. then, but then later on in the in the book, you've got uh, Lando, not Landau, Lando, walking around the Millennium Falcon, and he goes into yeah. Chewie's room, for want of a better word, and Chewie has still yeah. got, yeah, he's got the, the, the hologram of him and Ben, because Chewie still yearns for that child. Yeah. I, and, I found that scene really, really good, to be honest with you. I do not understand why it. it's not in there. I loved no, it. I loved it. I, I would, there was, for me, there was more, much more emotion in the book. There yeah. were moments when I was reading the book where you could feel, you, you could feel the love or you could feel the, the anguish or the, what was missing from, from the film. It was, yeah, again, without saying it too often, Ray Carson really, really captured some moments in that book. Yeah, because we never really saw a young Ben Solo other than him being corrupted by Snow. So we, we had no real idea of his relationship with Chewie and, and all of those sort of things. And I thought this, almost brought about more redeemable qualities in Ben Solo that we never saw in the film. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's funny in, in the movie itself, there were a couple of moments where I caught myself going, wow. But the thing they did, the one emotional moment for me was when we saw them come back to the, what's the name of that planet that they're on with the, Resistance are Kloss? Klop? Mm, it's not Klop. Anyway, when they get there and they find out the layer's dead and we just see Chewie just go to bits. Yes. Thank you, yeah. When when that happened in the film, I literally teared up a little bit because it's quite an emotional release for him. Yeah, yeah in the something book. That, something that didn't happen in The Force Awakens. When he lost Han, no. Well, I he we heard him roar in agony, Rage. but yeah. But then I think we then saw his opportunity to basically kill Kylo Ren at that point mm. in time when he shot him, didn't he? So, um, and that's another. And the book, that's another go say, yeah, no, because that's where the book actually says that injury is the reason how Ray defeated him, and it's it still annoys Kylo Ren. Yeah, yes. yeah, which I thought yeah. was kind of cool. 
Have you noticed that also in the book he never refers to her as Ray, he calls her the scavenger? Yes. Yeah. Which I thought was quite in keeping with The Force Awakens more than The Last Jedi. Yes. Or did he or did he call her the scavenger in The Last Jedi as well? I can't remember. I haven't seen the film in ages, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, but um but yeah, so that the the emotion in the book is definitely a lot more there than the actual movie itself i think um and the other thing that kind of got me with the emotion in the book is something else that's explored in more detail in the book than the film and that's um zori bliss escaping from kijimi mm. and we only see and correct me if i'm wrong guys the way it kind of ends is that she gives uh, poe the the coin to allow him to basically escape. We don't see or hear from her again until the final scene on Exegol. That's pretty right, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. In the film. It just happens to be a part of the resistance bill. Yeah, and there's no kind of explanation, whatever. Um, but this book goes into detail about how she tries to escape, does escape. And the bit with the emotion for me was like, there's a bit where Babu Freak is talking and it kind of gives the impression that he's dead mm. or am I yeah. the only one that caught yeah and we know that he isn't because he appears at the end of the book as well but at that point the way that they detail the escape from Kajimi was was really good but the one thing that got me about Kajimi and I don't know if you, either of you picked this up there's, there's, there's a couple of pages where they're describing what Kajimi used to be before it was today like a religious a monastery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. To the Bendu. Yes. Yes. The Bendu. Yes. And as I'm reading it and I'm like, wait, hold on. And it struck me that obviously the Bendu is in rebels and he is this balance in the force to a certain extent. He's neither good nor evil. It's slightly mystic. Yeah. And I just thought it was amazing that in this planet, they had the Bendu or, or something, ben, Gal Bendu, I think it was, or Dal Bendu, or something like that. But nevertheless, it's the Bendu, which is a false-sensitive creature, or perceived thing anyway. Um, so that struck me as a really interesting thing that they've brought into this planet. Yeah, but it also then means that in Rebels, when we see the Bendu, is the Bendu is title like the Jedi or the Sith? Hadn't thought about that. Because if there are religious worshippers, for want of a better word, to the Bendu, maybe he is a godlike deity or a creature that is of a particular... It's like in in the Hindu religion where you've got um, the six-armed elephant. I can't remember the name of it. Um, You know, something like that. Who knows? They are the gods, but I was I was thinking more along the lines of if you've got because you've got okay, so we've always referred to them in the past as the grey Jedi because you're using Jedi. Just you could just as easily call them grey Sith because there's somewhere that's in the middle. But perhaps maybe when oh possibly we might go down the route of the ones in the middle could be the Bendu. Yeah, and the Bendu definitely makes it clear that he's not Jedi or Sith when we meet him. 
and Rebels. Yeah. He makes that absolutely clear. So, so maybe Bendu is his title, like Jedi. He's just a false sensitive. Mm. That's nice. And he really refuses to get involved as well, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, until he has to. Until he yes. really has to. But even then, when he does it at the end of Rebels, he goes after both Kanan and Callus. Yeah. yeah. So it's so it's again he's in he's balance he's in the middle. Mm. So so it's possible that this this uh, Kajimi this planet was where the Bendu was situated. It is possible. So we've got. I'm just trying to put the pieces of puzzle this together. When you think about it, you've got Koriban, Moriban, and obviously Exegol which are the planets of the Sith. Did we ever get a planet of the Jedi apart from Act 2? Just Act 2, really. Act 2 is the planet of the Jedi. And then bang in the middle, you got Kijimi, which Ooh. is planet of the Bendu. Well, I suppose for the Jedi, you do have these temples on certain planets as well. Yeah, you had um, in Rogue One. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jeddah. Yeah. Jeddah. Don't and you also have it that. in Rebels as well on <laughs> Lothal. Lost <laughs> 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 inside Jake. Uh-huh. Yay! <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but again, the um, the escape from Kajimi, going back to the book, <laughs> um, was was again explored in a bit more detail. It was. It was done really well as well. I can say it builds sorry bliss up really well as well. Yeah, because I I think one of my criticisms of her previously was that it really didn't need her as a character, but I kind of felt she had more of a place because of the book. Mm. Agree. Yeah, totally agree. Um, and I suppose then that kind of leads us on nicely actually to the final couple of things that. We get a bit more detail. Force of. healing. Force healing. That's yeah. Not that, did we did we not talk about that earlier? Yeah, you, you touched on that with with the snake. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think we text, like said that she actually found it in the Jedi text. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, kind no, we didn't. You're which right. Which is kind of like a really, really important thing. Because yeah, go for it. When when you see Ray coming out with this power, which for me in particular I struggled with because, um, as we know, um, Anakin couldn't save Padme, but it appeared very easy for a uh, a person with no real training to suddenly heal something. I was like, this just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, and I found that really infuriating as a plot hole. But um, this made it very clear that she was studying. And indeed, it brought in Dominic Monaghan's character, whose name I can't remember if it's and showed how she she was actually working with him to translate some of the scripts and understand it a bit better. So for it, not only did it add to a new character, which again had like two lines where he said, you know, this, this magic or whatever it was, um, it made more sense to him. But also it showed that Ray was studying. This wasn't just the Mary Sue stuff. This wasn't just given to her. She was studying hard to learn it, and she had to really hone these skills. So I thought that was that was kind of really cool. Yes, yeah, it's true that. 
Yeah, it's funny how when you think Palpatine positions the ability to save somebody from dying as a force that Anakin could only learn in the dark side of the force. Yeah. yeah. In the Jedi texts, um, which should be arguably the complete reverse of the learnings of the dark side in, from a certain point of view anyway, that it's in there and it teaches you how to heal someone. It's quite, it's quite an interesting way that they've taken that position of healing somebody or preventing someone from dying isn't a dark side power, for want of a better word. Yeah, because it's, it's selfish to give your life force. Yeah, yeah, it's the other way around. Yeah, you're, you're, you're losing some of your life force to bring somebody else back to life. So I, I thought that was really cool the way they did that and, and worth just commenting on. Well, she did that, really. Ray Carson. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. The kiss still annoys me in that part, but let's not worry about that for now. We'll get to that because, actually, I, I think there are bits which means that that was not romantic at all, as Dave and I discussed last night, but we'll get to it. Oh, let's get to it now because it bugs me still. <laughs> it's, yeah. I, I could have done. I, 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 if it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Like if it didn't happen in the movie, I wouldn't have lost anything because they did it. I didn't gain anything from it either. If that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it, it felt unnecessary in the film. Um, and almost felt like it was a little bit of a nod to a movement in the fandom known as Raylo. And I think because there'd been so much undoing in, in places of the Ryan Johnson film that I think towards the, towards the end of the creation of The Rise of Skywalker, I think that that was something that was shoehorned back into the film just to try and create some appeasement for a a portion of the fandom. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Well, this is like, this is like the second or third thing we've collectively agreed on today, gentlemen. This is getting a worry. <laughs> but then hilariously, I think the book... Undoes that, that. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> the book so, moves it back to being more of a platonic kiss. Yeah, was it a kiss of gratitude kiss of or something? Was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Which but is it's interesting because I think the original cut, because from what we know, the kiss was added later, may well have been Kylo Ren doing exactly how Ray brought him back to life or healing him, just by touch, not by a kiss. So I think I think that, that the way that it was filmed and edited afterwards is, is quite interesting. That and the fact that they've gone back to it on a book. Mm. And as Dave and I discussed, and, and I don't know how you think about this, Alex, because obviously Dave and I have spoken about it. I felt the romantic relationship came back to Ray and Finn. That's how I interpreted yeah. the book. Yes. Yeah, there was a lot more of a bond between Ray and Finn. And less of a bond, even more so, between Finn and Rose. Yes. Um, well, there wasn't one, not really. Well, I mean, I yeah. think it even mentions that with Rose that she knew that his heart belonged to someone else. Yeah. Yes. yeah. It's in the last couple of pages, it says that it's more than just a friendship with Ray and Finn. Yeah. 
yeah. I mean, and for me, that that that's actually, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go all soft or, or whatever, but for me, that's the better way that that relationship has gone because it was there from the very, not necessarily the very beginning, but it was there from an early part of The Force Awakens. Yes. You could yeah. see a bond growing between the two of them that, you know, when they both face off against Kylo Ren and Ray sees Finn flat out with the blade cutting up his back, you know, you could see it in her face that there was somebody she deeply cared about that has been completely taken out. Um, yet the last Jedi doesn't build on that, but we won't get into that now. But then obviously what does happen, go on, Dave. I, I was going to say, but you also had it the opposite way around because you had Finn constantly on the run and constantly wanting to mm. escape. But the moment that he had an opportunity to save Ray, he'll go to Starkiller base for her. True, yeah. I mean, even to a certain extent, the start of The Last Jedi, where he's obviously unconscious, but then he wakes up. The first thing he, th- he says was, where's Ray? Mm. Um, and then obviously he gets developed on in the, last, in the uh, Rise of Skywalker, which is a... Is a, is a good way for that to go and I'd be very keen to find out what happens after this movie I really would just to, to see where they go and, and what happens there yeah, yeah well that, that, that that's the odd thing about this the, this whole premise of it being the end of the Skywalker stroke really Palpatine saga <laughs> is that where you end it's not really an ending it's a beginning it's you a beginning argue... of race it's the you beginning argue, of Ray's saga. You could argue the end of Return of the Jedi is the beginning as well, because it's the beginning of the Jedi being brought back to life again. Yeah, but this but this has been marketed as being the absolute ending of it, and like the characters not going back to it. It's just yeah, really this, just, is, this is the end of the saga. That's what they said. They yeah. said that. They said that about the end of Toy Story three, and then we got Forky in the end of Toy Story four. It's like you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, just, it's very, it's just odd the way that they've done that to me. But I, I, I like it, but it's odd. So then, Exegol. We finally get to understand where the hell all of these people came from. Yes. And listening back to the review of the movie... All of us were like, what the hell? You're telling me there's been a planet for years of random people hooded up waiting for this to happen. Yet the book goes into detail in quite a hell of a lot of detail, actually, about how it's been there for a while. The the, the, the troopers have been taken as children from the First Order. They are acolytes of, of, of Palpatine. Uh, it made a bit. It made it. No, it didn't make a bit more sense. It made a hell of a lot more sense, guys. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I just echo what you you would say. It, it it's again very odd decision not to include it in the film and just have these people randomly appear on a planet that makes no sense. And, and it doesn't seem to me again that this would have taken up that much time to really flesh out. The story and explain okay these are people Sith Eternal this is how we end up with these Sith troopers that were criminally underused in the film and and all of that kind of stuff because it, it just it just 
it seemed very odd to me that you have this huge stadium with all these people, you have these ships with, and I like the fact actually on, on the ship that went out and destroyed the planet, we, we find a bit more about the captain, her story spoken about, and how, you know, she had ambitions to make a great captain, but, mm. but that ship obviously, which I've said it's still out there, the story explains it isn't, it comes back, it's destroyed, yeah. and Admiral Pride literally says, well, she was an unpromising captain anyway. So it's <laughs> like this person thinking she's got this great future when she never actually had it. But I like that um, that depth of character and, and understanding of the situation that, that we just didn't get in the film. No, I totally agree. And like, like you just said then, the film left it fairly open-ended, because you, you come away from the movie thinking, well, there's still a Star Destroyer out mm. there that's got planet-killing capability. Whereas the, the the book ties it back up and says that the Star Destroyer journeys back to Exegel. So it's there. It's there at the end, and it gets mm. destroyed. In fact, it's the first one to be destroyed. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's funny, that, that whole ship thing that you mentioned there... I. I didn't even it didn't even occur to me when we when the movie finished. I was like, all right, all right, that's really cool. And then we started talking about it. And Ali, you said there's still another ship out there. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, wait, hold on. Yeah, in the movie we don't see it return to Exegol. We don't see what happened to it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then the book paints this amazing picture of it went, it came back, it had a little look, it saw what was going on, and then it got blown up as well. So mm. uh, you know, it did wrap that up quite nicely. And one of the other grievances shall we say that was with the film have been explained in the movie heaven forbid um and then the other thing that i quickly wanted to talk about i'm losing my we did have an agenda listeners honestly um Oh, have we covered everything, guys? No, 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 we didn't, we didn't. No, no, we haven't. So the other scene um, that gets... Well, we saw a still picture of it in the, after the film was released and everyone's picking out the ships and stuff, but effectively we hear somebody, or it's written in the book, I should say, saying, the ghost is ready. Yeah. And I, for one, thought that was brilliant. Now, we don't say... It doesn't say who from the ghost is talking, because... If you think back to the discussion that we had, I think we kind of joked it could either be Hera, it could be Hera's child, um, could be Sabine, we don't really know. But I, again, I just found that really cool. And I also found the reference to the Tantive Four really cool as well um, throughout the book. And they yeah. called you're, it, you're missing they, the big character. Kaz. Kaz is in there from Resistance. Is he? Yeah. The book says Kaz is there. Yeah. Does it? I I probably missed that. Sorry. I totally missed that. Or maybe I'm making this up. Sure as well. Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to doubt myself here. I'm sure he was. I don't know. I don't know. What, What I did like, or, well, whether you want to say did or didn't like, was that in the novel as well, you have the demise of the Tantive Four. And it's firmly written into the book the way the way that the ship goes down. And I did think that that was particularly well written. Yeah. And and 
and how poignant that is. And they call it Leia's ship. Yeah. 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 He is I, in I, there. I just really like Sorry. <laughs> Who? Kaz. He's there. Kaz is in there. Yeah, yeah. He is. He's the annoying one at the end. I need to read well, that. Fireball here. here. Hi, everyone. Cut the chatter, Kaz. A deep voice responded. Oh, okay. Okay. Starts with Millennium Falcon standing by for order, said Lando. On Calamari feet standing by. Phantom Squadron go standing by. Alphabet 2. Zave Versio with Inferno Squad standing by. And then Kaz. So, yeah. Just going to take ah, quite a bit okay. more. Okay. Well, he was such a forgettable character in Resistance. I didn't even pick that up. I might have to read the last couple of pages again just for the, to, to read that. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry you were saying that. Sorry, rudely interrupted that. No, 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 no. That, that's, that's a great interruption. I didn't even, didn't even put that together. Um, what I was going to say was, though, have we covered everything that we wanted to? I think so, apart from I did like Leia's full name. Leia Organa Skywalker Solo? Yeah, Solo was in there, uh, which I'd never really thought she did. So I kind of like. Well, yeah, like well, the thing is, if Ben Solo takes his dad's name, if they did get married, then you would imagine she took her name, but because she's royalty, would she have taken his name? Which seems to be the reason why she's given herself everything that she can, because technically she wasn't a Skywalker by name. No, no, by legacy. Exactly. Yeah, we know her as. Leia Organa in the movie, um, Princess Leia, and then married to Solo, so therefore she'd be Leia Solo technically. But yeah, you know, if she's if she's rolling with it, she knows that she's Anakin Skywalker's daughter. Then why not? Yeah, yeah. I just I just liked it. I thought it was quite interesting. No, but yeah, I, I, I like the end. Sorry, literally, literally the end, uh, the end of the saga regardless if it's Palpatine or Skywalker, uh, the end of the book, dare I say it, the end of this podcast. Oh, don't don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that being said, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you for your final thoughts. Uh, Dave, let's go with you. Thank you, Ray Carson. That, that is my final thought. Thank you, Ray Carson, for a great book and for providing me something that makes me want to watch The Rise of Skywalker again. Okay. I'm going to say something controversial. Read The Last Jedi book and see if that changes your mind. I have been thinking <laughs> about that. I have been as well. I really have. I have. I don't, know who wrote I don't know who wrote it. That can be that can be another podcast in the future. Yeah. Mr. Contrary, final thoughts from you. So, um, I, I want to. It is related, but so Paul Bateman, who is someone who Alex and I deeply respect in his opinions on Star Wars, has tweeted out in the last hour an article which is called "The Mandalorian is evidence that Star Wars still has a pulse," and I just want to read a little bit from it because I think this article has changed because of the book. And that's how important it is. The article says that Star Wars fans are an excitable bunch of the best of times. The last several years have pushed many to breaking point. 
First came 2017's Atrocious The Last Jedi, where director Rian Ryan Johnson aimed a laser cannon at the cannon of Star Wars itself. And then just before Christmas, the fan base's eyebrows were collectively singed by the massive exploding Star Destroyer of a blockbuster that was J.J. Abraham's Rise of Skywalker. Now, I, you guys may disagree with that, but I kind of think that's pretty much where I stood on those two films at the end of Rise of Skywalker. But actually, having read this book, I look more favourably upon the trilogy as a whole. I still don't think the films, any of them, are above a five for me, but I'm excited to go back and watch it and really Ooh. place bits into it. So I, I think that it's interesting that the perception of Star Wars and we know the fandom and this and all the toxic elements of it is has been for the last few years one of people who just cannot get on with itself and with some cause because the films haven't been that great in my view but this book has certainly made me look back more favorably because Ray Carson has done that greater job in it and that's what I want to really take away is, is that the book shouldn't add as much to a film as this one has but it's done so well that I think it's a central reason reading for anyone who is a Star Wars fan and was unsatisfied with the sequel saga. I would add on to that, that it's essential reading for a Star Wars fan, even if you thoroughly enjoyed the sequel trilogy, like I, what well, I did apart from The Last Jedi, um, because I enjoyed The Rise of Skywalker. Um, I think on the review show, I gave it an 8 out of 10. Um, I still stand by that, really enjoy it. But this book adds it 8.5, maybe even a 9, not a 9, maybe 8.5, adding the book. Oh. Tell me a film that's a nine for you, just out of interest. Uh, I'm interested in what film you put this in company with that's non-Star Wars. Oh, that's... Mate, I don't... um... I'm just interested to know how high you put this as a film. So, outside of Star Wars, a nine for me is like the original Matrix. Okay. Wow. Um... I would put that film nowhere near the Matrix. I would agree with that. Well, I said the Matrix is a nine. I said this is an eight. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's what I'm interested to know. Like, do you think it's that that good? Because some people do, and that's not that's there's no right or wrong. But yeah. I'm just interested for comparison's sake as to where you think. Because to me, like Matrix is one of the finest films of the last. Well, it's just inside twenty. No, it's probably over twenty years now. Twenty one years. Twenty five. Yeah. So, That's what I mean. So, um, if you and so yeah, Matrix is a nine, but an eight for me would be like maybe one of the earlier Indiana Jones films, Temple of Doom. Yeah. Oh really? Wow. See, I, I I I would agree with Indiana Jones being around an eight. I just yeah. I just cannot equate this film anywhere near an Indiana Jones film, except of course the last terrible Indiana Jones film. In which case, Mate, this, no, no, no. The last Indiana Jones film, the, the, <laughs> the, the diamond skull, whatever it is, that, that's Last Jedi territory, mate. Well, Rise of Skywalker for me as well, but yeah. <laughs> Again, it's all personal opinion, right? Um, Absolutely, nothing's right or wrong. It's just interesting to me. It's it's only right or wrong when you're wrong and I'm right, so that's fine. Um, but but as you know, good. you are in the minority on this podcast. <laughs> I don't know. This podcast we've agreed on quite a lot, so yeah, that's true. <laughs> but not. And not that this is an eight movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but 
my final thoughts is thoroughly enjoyable book. Thank you again to Delray for sending us the preview copies to enable us to do this podcast just in time for it to be released. Thoroughly enjoyed it. We look forward to you sending us some more freebies further down the line. Thank you very much. Um, and with that being said, we are the Jedi Council. Um, we are everywhere and anywhere that you can think about. We are online. We are www.the-jedi-council.com. Find us on Twitter. We are at the Jedi underscore council. Find us on Facebook. We are TJC underscore the Jedi underscore council. Find us on Instagram. We are uh, the Jedi underscore council underscore TJC. Interact with us. Get involved with us. You can find a back catalogue of all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, on the iOS app podcast uh, app. We are on Spotify. We are on player.fm. We are on Podbean. We are on other podcast apps that I keep forgetting. Uh, go check us out. And we are now on YouTube. If you haven't gathered by now, uh, these guys did a great intro review of this particular book on YouTube the other day. It's there. Check it out. We've got some great content on there at the moment. Dave did a fantastic review of his... Uh, what's the name of the book again, Dave? Um, Star Wars Art, Ralph Macquarie. Perfect. Uh, go check out YouTube. Like, subscribe, ring the little bell so anytime you get some new content, you'll get that straight to your... Uh, next time you log into YouTube. And remember, may the force be with you. Remember, the force will be with you always.